the word of the Lord. I never have liked that Luke included my name in this account, especially here at the burial. It felt too personal, like uh, betraying a trust, and I thought it was too risky. But Luke insisted, as did the other writers of the Gospels, that people would need to know who I am. So they wrote it down. And in, in retrospect, they were right. Um, since that momentous Passover, countless people have sought me out. And they've had questions. Was he really dead? Was it actually my tomb? How did I get access to Pilate to get access for the body? I would become, as the historian said, a very important eyewitness. So the writers of the gospel were right. People needed to know who I am. And so all four of them, they included my name with some detail. Luke puts it this way. There was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, a member of the council who went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Joseph of Arimathea, that's how people refer to me. Joseph was a very common name in Israel in those days, but I was Joseph from the town of Arimathea, and I would become known for good and for ill as the man who buried Jesus. And you probably have your questions too. What was it like to take a man off of a cross? What was it like to lay someone in your own tomb? Did I know I, I was dealing with the Messiah? Did I, did I expect the resurrection when we sealed the tomb? Did I have any idea the impact that this man would have on my people, the world, myself? Well, the, the events of that weekend obviously were a turning point in my life. They changed my life. And they, they taught me what it cost to be close to God. I might as well tell you the whole story. Modern audiences like yourself, they, they want me to begin with a highlight reel. The trial, the flogging, the cross, the empty tomb. And I'll tell you what I tell them. You cannot understand what happened in the spring of that year in Jerusalem unless you first understand the Passover. You cannot understand what Christians call the passion until you understand what Jews call Passover. There were three great feasts where my people made pilgrimage to the holy city, and the greatest of these was Passover. I was 12 years old the first time I was allowed to join my family. It was a long journey, and it began with tremendous excitement. As a boy, I got to accompany the family to the holy city. But my excitement was quickly dampened by no small sense of horror when I made a difficult discovery about that weekend. You see, Passover is very, very bloody. Each family upon arrival in the city has to buy a lamb, just a one-year-old lamb. And keeping it during the week and feeding it, 
This all leads up to Friday when each family has to bring the lamb to the temple and the head of the household sacrifices the lamb between noon and three o'clock. To, to give you some idea of the scale, upwards of 100,000 pilgrims would join the already large population of Jews in Jerusalem on the Passover. The city was teeming. And the last time records were kept before the temple fell in AD 70, Josephus wrote that 250,000 lambs were slain. This is in the period of just a few hours. And so you can picture the noises. You probably can't imagine the blood. And so as the blood pours out from the Temple Mount, it makes its way down to the Kidron Valley. And all while these lambs are being slain, the Levitical priest, they chant the Hillel Psalms. To the uninitiated, it's, it's too much to take in. I was overwhelmed that first year. And it was simply my constitution as a boy that I had grown attached to our family's new lamb. And I cried my eyes out when I had to watch my father kill it. I was confused. And on the long journey home back to Arimathea, I, I asked my father questions. Why do we go up to Passover? And why does the lamb have to die? Are our prayers not enough? This, this was a very important time in an Israelite family, and my father took care to explain to me the deep meaning of Passover. Joseph, he said, one day you will have the responsibility to take your own family here on Passover, and you need to understand it. We go to Passover, he said, to be close to God. The lamb must die because being close to God costs something. He went on to explain things that were over my head, how the, the blood somehow marked us out and that God would then, when he came in judgment, he would pass over us and pass over our sins. And he spoke of Moses and he spoke of this great event, the Exodus, even the parting of the Red Sea. But what I remembered was that phrase, we go up to Passover to be close to God. The lamb must die because being close to God cost something. You could say I've spent the rest of my life trying to work out what that means. Well, I was just a boy back then, but by the time Jesus arrived in Jerusalem on that fateful weekend, I had become a man, and an important man. As Luke says, a member of the council. By council, he means Sanhedrin. You don't know what that is. The Sanhedrin was a group of 71 men headed by the head priest. We were the powerful. Our court, it touched on matters of religion, politics, and law, and it was the highest court in the land. I was a man of great repute. And perhaps your gospel writers are too generous, but they understood my reputation. Mark, Mark says, Joseph of Arimathea was a respected member of the council. Matthew includes that I was a rich man, and I was. And Luke, he says I was good, and I was righteous. I was important. I was a leader. I was a man to be respected. But the public man was not the private man. You understand how 
that can be the case. And there is an underlying discontent I carried about in me during those days. And it was a discontent that really all of our people felt. There was something off in Israel. Something wasn't quite right. I mean, we were in the promised land. Thanks to Herod, we had the most resplendent temple we had ever had. We had a wonderful holy city, and yet we felt far from God. And you could list the reasons for this. I mean, there was the Roman occupation, so we felt like we were in exile even while we were at home. There was the fact that we hadn't had a prophet, not a real prophet, in 400 years, not since Malachi. And then, of course, there was the the, the factions in my own people. Judaism was splitting apart. And even the, the corruption was even reaching to the level of the high priest. And so as Luke records here in, in chapter 23, verse 51, he, he says, I was looking for the kingdom of God, but I could not see it. And perhaps this is why so many people were drawn to the man from Nazareth, the charismatic teacher, Jesus. Here is this, this young teacher who, who seemed to speak with such authority, and it seemed as though he had the power of God at his fingertips. And, and people who got close to him said that he made them feel close to God, as though the, the presence of God was with him. I made trips out to the Judean countryside to see him. He, he was amassing a large following, and some people were going so far as to say he was the one, the Messiah, and they were leaving everything and following him. Now, I felt drawn to him too. I have to be honest and tell you that. But I kept a safe distance. You see, my situation complicated things. My peers, the Jewish elite, were undecided on Jesus. Some were skeptical, and some were even growing incensed. And the Romans were not sure what to make of him. So for me, drawing close to Jesus would potentially be very costly. I would lose reputation. I could lose my position, so I kept a distance. And it's your, it's your fourth evangelist, John, who gets it right. When he says, Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. I'm ashamed of that sentence, but it was true. Being too close to Jesus would cost too much, so I kept a safe distance. That's why it's surprising that I found myself in the middle of the storm when he came riding into Jerusalem, and it was a storm. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he rode a donkey through the eastern gate. He knew he was embodying Zechariah's prophecy that Israel's king would come riding in just this way. And he knew it was happening while thousands of people were flocking to Jerusalem. And there was, in fact, trouble on all sides. By this point, my colleagues, the Jewish elite, they were growing unified in wanting Jesus dead. And the Roman officials, many of whom made their way to Jerusalem for the Passover week, they were not unaware of how a charismatic leader could spin up an uprising. And lest we forget, it was Passover. And sitting behind Passover is the Exodus. And the story of the Exodus is God's deliverance 
from his people, from their oppressors. This was not lost on the Romans. They knew they were the bad guys and that hundreds of thousands of Jews were gathering to celebrate God's deliverance. And so when Jesus, when Jesus rides in and throngs of people are shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, this would sound to Pilate like a battle cry. This man is being pit against Caesar. So Jesus, he rode his donkey into the eye of a storm that week, and I got sucked in with him. Now, the events that happen next, you're well familiar with. Later in the week, Jesus is arrested, he's tried, he's sentenced, and he is summarily executed. But perhaps you're wondering, how did I get involved in all this? being that I had been so careful to follow Jesus at a distance. Well, convicting Jesus required a trial, and a trial meant the Sanhedrin, of which I was a member. Thursday night, we were summoned to the house of the high priest. Jesus had just been arrested across the Kindred Valley in the Garden of Gethsemane. We had an ad hoc meeting with the high priest when interrogation began. We adjourned for the rest of the night. We came back together officially Friday morning in our official courtroom on the Temple Mount, which is called the Court of the Hewn Stone. We sit, all 71 of us, He's brought in standing. He did not look afraid, but he looked tired. He had been up all night, but he, he, also, he also looked like a man upon whom a great weight was descending. A majority convicted him of blasphemy, which is worthy of death, according to Jewish law. He was moved then over to Pilate, the Roman official. Pilate, being the mercurial man that he was, was eventually manipulated by the crowd into adding the condemnation of treason, which was punishable by crucifixion, according to Roman law. So before I knew what was happening, a mob catches me up, and we're following this man to the Mount of the Skull. It all happened so fast. So why didn't I do something? Well, I appreciate Luke for this. Luke is very clear. Luke says in verse 51 that I had not consented to their decision or action. That means neither to the decision to condemn him nor the action to crucify him. I had not consented. You can read it. It's there. But I... But I also didn't do anything to stop it. I mean, what could I have done? How could I have stopped this mob? And so I did what I had always done. I followed Jesus at a safe distance. Now, having grown up in cities under Roman occupation, I was not unfamiliar with crucifixion, although it's not something you get used to. With with this device, the Romans had perfected the art of death. Half torture, half statecraft. The man would suffer piercing agony that would then be drawn out while he suffocated to death. Torture. While at the same time, he was hung naked as a public spectacle 
dissuading any other would-be insurrectionist statecraft. And with the sign they put over Jesus' head, King of the Jews, written in three languages, Rome was making a very clear point. There will be no deliverance of Israel this Passover. At least not the deliverance they expected. You may wonder what it was like to take all this in. The, the thing that was the hardest for me was when I noticed through the crowd Jesus' mother. Not only was she witnessing her, her son's death, but she was close enough to hear him speak. Well, I grew overwhelmed and I left. I walked home in what felt like a daze. I walked into my house. I tried to explain what had happened to my wife. And she said to me that I had to do something. She said, Joseph, do something. And I said, what could I possibly do? And then she said it, and I knew she was right. She said, Joseph, do not leave that man hanging there like a criminal for the birds to eat. You give him the decency of an honorable burial. To which I replied, how in the world am I going to get his body? And where am I going to bury him? And she said, use your connections and bury him in our tomb. Our family had purchased a tomb in Jerusalem where we all would be laid to rest. So I knew what I had to do. And it was getting dark, and so I had to act quickly. Now, this is the turning point. I don't want you to miss this. The decision to bury Jesus, it was the moment where I had to decide to go fully public with my association with him. And now, not just associating with a gifted teacher, I had to associate with a condemned criminal and the shame of a cross. There was no way I could publicly ask for his body and bury him without losing my rapport with the Jews and the Romans and certainly losing my position. You could say, and if you said this, you would be right, that in order, in order to bury Jesus, I would have to bury myself. So perhaps it was fitting that this scene would culminate in my own grave. I went to Pilate. He didn't really care. He gave me permission to take the body. It was dark, but under the light of a full moon, it's always full moon at Passover, under the light of full moon, I made my way back to Golgotha. Now, there are two aspects of the rest of the night that I want to tell you about. One is the blood and the other is the tomb. You will get a man's blood on your hands when you take him off a cross. And soon Jesus' blood was all over me. I dismounted his body, which was, which was growing cold at this point, the life having left some hours ago. And I laid, I laid out linens I brought, and I, and I laid him on the linens as gently as I could, and I began to try to clean the blood off of his face. And as I noticed the blood covering my own hands, his blood, my mind suddenly flashed back to that first Passover when I was 12. 
It was on that very same day of the year when I watched my father slaughter the lamb, when I watched all the blood cover his hands, and I remembered that he took some of the blood from the lamb and he grabbed my hand and he pressed the blood into my hand and he rubbed it across my palm and he said, Joseph, the blood, it's your blood. The lamb was sacrificed for your sins. God, Yahweh, Elohim has passed over you. You can draw near to him. Well, then I... I finished wrapping Jesus' body with the help of my friend Nicodemus, and we, we laid him in my, my tomb. The tomb was cut out of rock. It had never been used before. And soon some of the others left, and I had a brief moment where it just was the two of us, just, just me with Jesus in the tomb. Now, it is a strange thing to stand inside your own grave. But it is a far stranger thing to lay a righteous man's body in your own place. It was as though he had died instead of me. My father would go on at that first Passover as we walked home from the temple. Joseph, sin is so serious. A sinful man cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. Sin cuts him off from God. The lamb, Joseph, the lamb got cut off in your place. The lamb has been swallowed up by your grave. Well, I am an old man now, and I have come to better understand what happened that evening. I know whose blood covered my hands, and I know whose body laid in my tomb. I have come to know that Jesus of Nazareth is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when I share this story with people, I always conclude by asking them just one question. Do you want to be close to God? Or are you okay living your life across the street from Him? Are you okay with being apathetic towards him? Are you okay with indifference? Are you okay with not really knowing him? Are you okay with being given the whole world an appointment in the Sanhedrin, but not having God? Do you really want to be close to God? My father told me that being close to God it costs something. His presence should not be taken lightly, he would say. His relationship is not something you have for cheap. It wasn't until I was willing to be publicly identified with Jesus at the cost of myself that I finally met him. It wasn't until I not only admired his teaching from afar, but identified publicly with the shame of his cross that I became his friend. Drawing close to God through Jesus, it will cost you something. You will have to lay down your life. But I learned something even more important than this through all these events. 
I learned not just what it cost me to draw near to God, but far more profoundly, I learned what it costs God to draw near to me. As I knelt there that night, as I knelt with his blood on my hands, and as I placed his lifeless body in my very own tomb, I was for the first time close to God. And that closeness, it did not cost me a lamb. It had cost God his son. You see, the real cost for you and me to draw near to God, the real cost cannot be paid by hundreds of thousands of lambs or goats or good deeds or prayers. The real cost can only be paid by God. And it has been paid by him. So the ultimate cost to draw near to God is paid by God. Luke used to tell me this is called the gospel. Good news, he would say. Yahweh reconciling himself to sinners by his very own lamb. We go up to Passover to be close to God. The lamb must die. No, the lamb must be crucified because being close to God costs something. My name is Joseph of Arimathea, and I buried the lamb of God.